crash, bash, mash, blast the system. We wanna get it hype, get it live, get with the mission. We want the crowd loud. This pumping rhythm is hitting. We wanna make it clear. We ain't scared. This is the vision we want. We want. We want. We want. We want. We want. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. This week on the Project Censored Show, we welcome back to the program author and media critic Alan McLeod, senior staff writer at Mint Press News. We'll look at the state of our so-called free press as we address issues of censorship by proxy, big tech and government curation and censorship under the guise of policing disinformation, the military entertainment complex, media coverage of Israel-Palestine, the Russia-Ukraine war, and much, much more. Stay tuned for a new episode of the Project Censored Show. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today, we are honored to welcome back Alan McLeod, senior staff writer and podcast producer at independent alternative media outlet, Mint Press News. After completing his PhD in sociology and journalism studies in 2017, Alan McLeod published two books on the media, Bad News from Venezuela, 20 Years of Fake News and Misreporting, and Propaganda in the Information Age, Still Manufacturing Consent. Alan has also written a host of academic and popular articles on the subject of media bias, propaganda, fake news. And in fact, today, we'll be talking with Alan McLeod about several articles that he's published over the last month or two about all things media, propaganda, surveillance, censorship. Alan McLeod, welcome back to the Project Censored show. It's great to be back with you. How are you? I'm fine. You know, considering everything that's going on in in the U.S., in the U.K., and around the world, we're probably doing better than many. And unfortunately, we are tasked with really looking uh, critically at how we know some of the things that are going on around us. And really, Alan McLeod, if it isn't for the work that you do, there's an awful lot of things I think that a lot of people wouldn't know about. And that's why we have you here back on the program again. It's, It's always great to catch up with you. You always seem to be looking at things and finding things of significance that the corporate media clearly miss or want to ignore. But you also have, you know, a real acumen in terms of your analysis, particularly even among left journalists. In other words, you've got a pretty critical gaze that goes in many different directions, which which we appreciate. And we wanted to start with a hot button topic here for some time, not Elon Musk, but the billionaire press and his control of Twitter. So we're not going to talk about Musk and his personality, and we're not going to go that, that route. But I'd like to hear your take on what you think is happening with the so-called Twitter files, maybe some analysis of some of the challenges in there. And then, of course, I know one of your recent articles is about Musk aiding the U.S. empire's regime change, specifically in Iran. So you have a very specific take on some of this as well. For those that aren't really following it so well, the Twitter files are kind of a loosely uh, collected group of journalists who've been allowed access to Twitter documents, thanks to Elon Musk's recent takeover of the company. 
he's got his own interests and his own agenda behind it, but they also have their own uh, ideas. And so when it first came out, we saw people like Matt Taibbi looking into suppression of the New York Post Hunter Biden laptop story. There was some interesting details in there, but perhaps nothing that we couldn't have guessed uh, from what we knew already about the big picture. He also looked at the January 6th incident where Republicans stormed the buildings in Washington, and he looked at the internal communications from Twitter staff about what they should do, should they suppress this, should they delete Trump's account, etc. Again, interesting to hear the internal dynamics, but I don't think there was really anything in there that we couldn't have at least guessed. We didn't know the details, but we did, again, see the big picture. And then a lot of people started getting quite uh, worried about where this Twitter files was going when we saw the next dump coming from Barry Weiss, who is, you know, mostly known as a shameless grifter who just promotes right wing content. And she spent most of her time her earlier career trying to get critics of the Israeli government silenced from universities and from college campuses. So people started wondering what this Twitter files was really about. Is this just going to be a billionaire passing documents to his favored journalists in order to further his own agenda? That's what some people were wondering about. But uh, actually, as it went on and more journalists got involved and they had their own negotiations with Musk and Twitter, things started to get very interesting especially for somebody like me who works a lot about how the national security state and the government more generally tries to influence our means of communication. So we saw with uh, Twitter files number seven, the journalist Michael Schellenberger discovered through these documents that the FBI actually knew the Hunter Biden laptop was genuine because they actually had that laptop in their possession and had verified it but then spent months setting up media outlets to worry about this coming laptop drop as being false Russian information. So they were actively putting their thumb on the scale for the Democratic Party and against the Republican Party. And this, this really blew up completely with journalist Lee Fang when he dropped his Twitter files investigation, whereby he was allowed to go to San Francisco and start doing searches on the Twitter email databases. And what he found was that despite the fact that Twitter talks about how it is vigorously uncovering state-backed efforts to manipulate social media, and put a stop to it, they were actually working closely with US Central Command, the military unit, to promote American disinformation across the Middle East and across the world, uh, pumping out state-backed fake news blitzes all the time, even as they were talking about how they were working to stop this in foreign countries. So CENTCOM, for instance, gave Twitter a list of dozens of accounts it ran, and then Twitter not only did they not ban them, but they actually whitelisted these accounts and gave, gave them special privileges so that their reach would be artificially boosted. Again, we also have to really look into the Twitter files, and it seems that some of the earlier ones, perhaps Elon Musk was literally handing documents out to certain journalists, whereby Louis Fang of The Intercept was absolutely uncompromising, said he didn't want any kind of manipulation here going on. It was him. He would have complete editorial control over what he saw and what he didn't see, and then he would write about it. So I think when people talk about the Twitter files, it's kind of difficult to lump them all together because they're very disparate in terms of what they reveal and what their agendas are. Unfortunately, a lot of the 
corporate media has really kind of jumped on this idea and ignored a lot of the stuff that I think is the juiciest about the US national security state actually carrying out psychological operations on the world and has focused laser-like on the question of whether right-wingers are being silenced online or whether there's an appropriate amount of censorship against them, which really only serves to push the Overton window and the uh, public discussion over to the right, talking about maybe the media isn't right-wing enough. And Musk himself, by doing all of this, has managed to present himself as some kind of renegade outsider, a guy who isn't controlled by anyone, he's a maverick. But in a series of articles I've written for Mint Press News, I've actually gone back and looked at his background and what he's been doing. And ultimately, I concluded that he is no renegade outsider. He's actually a massive Pentagon contractor. SpaceX, one of his big companies, was actually midwifed by the CIA. A lot of people don't know that specifically in the CIA, they have a venture capitalist firm called InQtel. And the head of InQtel, Mike Griffin, saw Elon Musk in the early 2000s as the next Henry Ford of the space industry. InQtel's mission is to identify tech and other cutting edge technology companies and work with them and bring them up so that they can provide the CIA and other three-letter agencies in Washington with a competitive advantage over their rivals like China or Russia. And so what this meant was that Griffin was really pounding the table all the time for Musk to get contracts and be let into this sort of secret club. And Griffin even accompanied Musk in 2002 before SpaceX was even officially launched. He went with Musk to Moscow to buy Russian intercontinental ballistic missiles to help him set up SpaceX. And even then, SpaceX was really struggling for years. But Griffin, who by this time was the head of NASA, managed to wire Musk $400 million worth of NASA contracts, and then later on get him a $1.6 billion contract with the space agency. And so ultimately, Musk has had this huge cash injection from the national security state from almost day one, and it goes on to this day. So one of Musk's most famous products is his Starlink satellite communications internet device, which if people don't know, is basically like a satellite dish that you put on your car or on your house, and then you can directly communicate with thousands of satellites orbiting the earth, which means that you can get around any kind of government censorship over the internet. We've seen Musk send thousands of these things to Ukraine, where he got a lot of good press for helping the Ukrainian people. But when you actually dive down into it, most of these Starlinks were actually going to the Ukrainian military. And now we have multiple quotes going as far as people like the deputy foreign minister talking about how the Ukrainian military's high-tech weaponry, which has been bust in from the US and other Western countries, is now completely dependent on Starlink to function for things like uh, heat imaging cameras or target acquisition or any kind of GPS function for these missiles and rockets that they're firing at the Russian military, to the point where people in the Ukrainian government say they have no option but Starlink. They are completely dependent on him. And so ultimately, Musk has become a real key cog in the US military's goals. He also, with SpaceX, has developed this private rocket business, which sends satellites up into the sky. But when you actually think about it for five minutes, who are the customers for anybody sending spy satellites into the air? It's the CIA, it's the NRO, it's NASA, it's the military. It's basically the US government and nobody else.
You mentioned Space Development Agency, National Reconnaissance Office, some acronyms. I just wanted to clarify some of that. Also, you write in your article about him having a $500 million contract to deliver systems to Lockheed Martin. So just really quickly, what you're saying is Elon Musk doesn't work with the national security state or the military industrial complex. He is an integral part of it. Exactly. He is a key cog of the surveillance state that has been built up over the last two decades by the U.S. government. The surveillance state that people like Edward Snowden risk their lives and their livelihoods to expose to us. And the fact that he's still being presented as this outsider who's a little bit crazy, who, you know, doesn't play by the rules, etc. He is absolutely within the blob in Washington. And to go back to your first question about Iran, this can really be seen how it's being played out in Iran right now. So as many people know, there are a lot of protests that happened in the latter half of 2022 in Iran. Iran shut down its internet because these protests were getting kind of hot and they claimed that the protesters were being backed by the United States government, giving orders from them, etc. And then Secretary of State Antony Blinken came on and said, we are working with our allies to try to get Iran back online and try to help the free flow of information to our allies, etc. To which Musk said, activating Starlink. And so now we know that there are hundreds of Starlinks being smuggled into Iran. Who's paying for these? It's not clear, but we do know that Musk was in direct negotiations with the US government for this project, meaning that, again, we have hundreds of activists in Iran using Musk's technologies to try to pressure or even overthrow their government. And so we see Musk is working with the US government on many of its most controversial regime change operations all around the world, including in Iran and also the now huge proxy war going on in Ukraine. And you write in your article about the National Endowment for Democracy, you write about a, quote, competition to promote so-called color revolutions or regime change operations. And again, this is going back at least a decade. You list Russia, Belarus, Venezuela, Iran, and then other countries. And again, Musk just pops on American popular culture scene through Tesla and Saturday Night Live and then the Twitter fiasco. But he's actually been a key player going back two decades. And these policies go back way longer than two decades. But this is never really presented to the American public as one issue. But whenever it seems to be presented in any way, it's extraordinarily framed like the Ukraine conflict is with with Russia. Can you comment a little on that, Alan McLeod, the framing of this when and if it ever is reported? First of all, you said, I list those countries. That was actually from the National Endowment for Democracy's own documents. So it's actually them saying, these are the countries we're trying to overthrow. And yeah, ultimately, you just don't become the world's richest man, although apparently he's lost huge amounts of money because his stock is crashing. But he was the son of an emerald mine owner in apartheid South Africa. So he was clearly extremely wealthy. But still, you don't become the world's richest man without some kind of buy-in from the U.S. government, especially if you're from the U.S. And ultimately, Musk has been feeding from the trough of the military-industrial complex, which hands out these gigantic contracts to all of these companies like Lockheed Martin and all the weapons companies and all the consulting firms that collectively all inhabit Raytheon Acres, this area surrounding Washington, D.C., where all these think tanks and companies and big corporations have their headquarters. But yeah, ultimately, 
the conflict in Ukraine is rarely framed as a West versus Russia conflict. It's really being presented as Russian aggression against Ukraine. And that's fine if you start the clock in February 2022. It's very easy to see Russia as the aggressor because they obviously did invade another country. So clearly that's on them. But if you take the clock back a little bit further and start looking at what the United States and Western Europe have been doing in Ukraine or how NATO has been expanding ever eastwards since the early 90s, the question about the sovereignty of Ukraine starts looking very murky, especially when you look at the events of 2014 when the United States helped overthrow the democratically elected government of Ukraine and install one that was far more conducive to its own needs, really inflaming the already nascent uh, fires of civil war in the country to the point where it's been boiling over for years. And there's now nine years of a civil war, which is rarely commented upon in the media. And so ultimately people unless you've got a very long memory or you've been paying uh, very close attention to this, people probably only think this conflict started in February 2022, when in fact it has its roots uh, decades uh, in the past. We're speaking with independent journalist Alan McLeod. He is senior staff writer and podcast producer at the independent alternative media outlet Mint Press News. You can learn more at mintpressnews.com. We will return to our conversation with Dr. Alan McLeod after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In this segment today, we are honored to welcome back to the program Alan McLeod. He is senior staff writer and podcast producer at independent alternative media outlet Mint Press News. He is also an author, a scholar. His PhD is in sociology and journalism. You can see his work at mintpressnews.com. Alan McLeod, just wanted to say that at Project Censored, we've long been followers of your work and supporters of your work. We think the kind of dot connecting that you do as a scholar and a journalist is the kind that we really need if we were to have a free press that informs the public in meaningful ways that spurs them to significant civic engagement. And the kind of writing, the kind of research, the kind of attention to detail you have, you're rattling off a long list of many, 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 many things that are extremely significant that many people just don't follow or have no idea about. And so on one hand, while we commend you for such fantastic work, it's a real challenge. That's one of the big elephants in the room here, even when we were talking about Elon Musk and Twitter and the idea that he somehow brands himself as this renegade free speech purist, a guy that has no problem censoring his own critics. Getting this kind of information out to the public is key and crucial, and we shouldn't be relying on social media outlets and private corporations or the billionaires that own the press to do it. We should be relying on a so-called free press that operates of and by we the people. That's a real part of the challenge here. And the kind of reporting that you do is the kind of reporting that we all need to hear more about. So Alan McLeod, let's continue our conversation here. There's some other things you wrote about just in the last several months that are of extreme interest to us here that involve government psyops. You have a whole piece with Activision on the video game Call of Duty, 
Of course, you write a lot about cancel culture and censorship around Palestine and Israel. There's so many things we could talk about, but let's at least finish up our conversation about Musk, the so-called Twitter files. You, in your article, how Elon Musk is aiding the U.S. empire's regime change operation in Iran— you talk about all these other things that we just mentioned. Uh, and you also talk about his presence at the World Cup, maybe his relations with the Saudis and others. Is there anything else you want to put at the end here on the Musk bit to punctuate what your concerns are about not Musk the person, but the role big tech plays inside empire and information control? I think a lot of people underestimate the influence of big tech and social media and algorithms in particular on not only the society, but what we think and what we think about as well. You know, the companies like Facebook, for instance, have 3 billion users, most of whom are relying on that platform to get news. And so ultimately, whoever controls that algorithm has an enormous influence over not only what Americans see, but people in every other country in the world as well, and crucially, what they don't see. So ultimately, our news feeds are a much more powerful medium of communication than anything any media baron of the 20th century ever had access to. And that is precisely why the US government is so interested in influencing these outlets like Twitter, like Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, Google, whatever you want to talk about, because ultimately that is where we're getting our information from. These algorithms are not neutral. They don't fall from the sky. They're not just written by some computer program. They come from individuals who program these things. And there are decisions made about what sort of content is pushed towards people and what sort of content is suppressed and pushed away. And we saw this particularly in the wake of the Russiagate scandal. In 2016 and 2017, all these big tech companies on the guidance of the US government changed their algorithms to promote what they saw as more established and more trustworthy content and sideline more borderline content is what they said. But the actual outcome of that has been to delist, derank, demote, and even in some cases delete high quality alternative media websites. For example, at Mint Press, we have lost more than 99% of our Facebook traffic almost overnight because of this change and more than 90% of our Google traffic since 2017. Again, for the same reason that these algorithms have been changed. It's a real shame because people went online, people went to places like YouTube to escape what their television was saying. They were looking for some sort of alternative, some sort of different opinion. And when they were given that, those channels and those outlets really thrived. But now what we've seen is uh, social media is really channeling people back into the established corporate media. And as I've been documenting for many years now, a lot of these established corporate media groups are hopelessly penetrated by the government itself. And so ultimately, we have a situation where we've basically got state censorship by proxy, but nobody talks about it. And that is a really big issue that we have to face here in the 2020s. Well, Alan McLeod, you just said the magic phrase. Andy Lee Roth and I have been writing about that at Project Censored for some time. In our new book, State of the Free Press 2023, we start out by talking about the state of the free billionaire press. And of course, free is crossed out, right? As A.J. Liebling quipped in 1961, uh, free press only belongs to those who can own one. And we go well beyond Musk and Bezos. We go down a whole list of these billionaires that own media outlets. 
But then, of course, we talk about one of our favorite underreported issues, and that is censorship by proxy. How big tech companies, cable outlets, etc., they're the ones that are doing the deplatforming, the censoring, in even more Orwellian terms, using it as a Trojan horse for censorship, but by claiming that they're policing disinformation. Less than a year ago, we learned about Biden administration's disinformation governance board, the laundry list of spooks and big tech people that they had lined up for that. You've long written about NewsGuard. Talk a little bit about the significant problem that this really is censorship by proxy, because it doesn't fit the definition in the United States of a First Amendment prior restraint issue where the government is technically going in and censoring outlets. Although we do know now from the Twitter files and other places that the government was actually directly working with big tech to censor narratives and do certain things. We, we know that that's the case. But talk more broadly about this really nefarious, pernicious, and I would say insidiously far more ubiquitous form of censorship by proxy. We like to think of Silicon Valley as kind of existing in the ether as some sort of stateless corporation that just does the best of what they can. But they're not that at all. They are American companies. They are brick and mortar companies, most of them based in California, and they operate under U.S. law. I'll give you one example, a couple of examples, actually, about how deep this sort of censorship by proxy goes. One example is Donald Trump in January 6th. Most people remember that he was booted off every social media platform in the event of that failed coup uprising, whatever you want to call it. I'm not saying that was the right decision or the wrong decision. There's definitely arguments being made either way that I can listen to. But ultimately, the person who made that decision at Facebook was a man called Aaron Berman. He talks about it in an interview with uh, Facebook that's on Facebook's own homepage. Now, what he doesn't say, though, is that until 2019, Aaron Berman was one of the most senior officials at the CIA. In fact, he was so high up in the CIA, he had been writing the president's daily brief for President Obama and President Trump. And he goes from this long career at the highest echelons of the CIA and is parachuted into the top of Meta, Facebook's parent company, to decide for the entire world what is appropriate and what is inappropriate. And this goes on at Facebook to an extraordinary extent. I've written a lot about this. If you want to Google it, if you write Alan McLeod, Facebook CIA, or something like that, it should come up in the first couple of hits. Facebook is absolutely crawling with CIA officials. Just by going onto employment databases and social media sites like LinkedIn and typing things like Facebook CIA into there, I was able to find dozens of people who have been dropped into the highest echelons, as I said, of Facebook, who previously were spooks and national security agents. For example, one other one is Scott Stern. Until 2013, Scott Stern was a targeting officer at the CIA. He rose to become chief of targeting for the entire agency. And if you're wondering, what does that mean? Is that like the guy who picks who is assassinated by drones? Yes, that is exactly the person, that is exactly what he's doing. Today, however, he is the senior manager of risk intelligence for Meta. Misinformation and malicious actors are his targets. And so ultimately, he's gone from the top of the military industrial complex and been dropped into the social media complex, if you will. And I'm picking on the CIA and Facebook, but actually I have dozens of examples of this. This happens at Instagram, at TikTok, at Reddit, 
at Google, all of these things I've been cataloging for the past year, year and a half at Mint Press News. One example I'll give from TikTok, which I think is particularly blatant, is a feature policy manager, Greg Anderson, who works there. Now, according to Anderson's own LinkedIn profile, until 2019, he worked on, quote, psychological operations, end quote, for NATO. And then he quit that job and then immediately became the feature policy manager for TikTok, deciding what people on TikTok see and what they don't see. I mean, this is a level of penetration that if it were happening in the Soviet Union, we wouldn't know whether to laugh or cry. It is incredible what they're doing. And what the Twitter files, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, what we saw from Schellenberger's Twitter files was that people at the FBI were directly contacting Twitter employees who were themselves former FBI officials and telling them who to censor and who not to censor. And that the former FBI officials who were now in politically sensitive fields in Twitter and things like trust and safety and content moderation were complying with this. And in fact, Twitter has so many FBI agents working for it that they have their own Slack channel and their own kind of uh, lingo that they use, these terms that they brought over from the FBI and now use in Twitter. And so this is a huge national security issue. It's a freedom of speech issue for Americans, for sure. But when you think of every other country in the world that allows companies like Twitter and Facebook and all the rest of them to actually be the main players in their media ecosystem, this becomes a huge national security issue because the US national security state can start to try and do things like swing elections or push propaganda in foreign countries. And this is not... A hypothetical. So, for example, in Nicaragua, in the elections in November 2021, Facebook, just a week before those elections, decided to delete 93 pages of the top left-wing pro-Sandinista movement, Facebook websites, their personal profiles, their accounts, etc. This, in a small country like Nicaragua, was clearly an attempt to swing the election from the left-wingers who were currently in power towards the right-wingers who were being backed by the United States government. What happened then was all of these people who got these messages saying that they were actually inauthentic bots or whatever, piled onto Twitter, recorded videos of their faces talking about who they were, what their accounts were, how they were not bots, and they were in fact activists or politicians or reputable journalists or nationally known figures. And what did Twitter do? They deleted all of those accounts as well in what Ben Norton, the journalist, called a political double tap strike. Likewise, in 2021, in July, Twitter really went to work trying to promote a color revolution in Cuba, trying to get the Cuban people onto the streets to overthrow their government. It didn't work, but the fact that they were so actively promoting this coup attempt by showing the entire world in their trending and what's new stuff that there was this huge protest going on in Cuba. In reality, it wasn't actually that huge. But they did this for 36 hours without rest. And they completely refused to pull all of these obviously fake AstroTurf bot accounts who are spamming these pro-insurrection hashtags going on. Like even the ones when they were just copying and pasting the same text over and over again, replete with the same typos, all of these people, obviously fake profiles, refused to do anything for it for months. And so ultimately, 
we are now seeing the amalgamation of big tech and big government. And it's very hard to see where the fourth estate starts and where the national security state ends. And that is very worrying from a freedom of press perspective going forward. Indeed, censorship by proxy, a real issue that we should be discussing. We're going to continue our conversation with journalist Alan McLeod of Mint Press News after this brief musical break. We'll be talking about more on PSYOPs, government intervention and control of narratives. And Alan McLeod is an encyclopedic resource, so please stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today on the program, we're speaking with Alan McLeod, and we are talking about a lot of his work at Mint Press News. You can learn more at mintpressnews.com. McLeod is senior staff writer and podcast producer at independent alternative media outlet Mint Press News. Alan McLeod, so much more to talk about here, but before we jump into another couple of subjects, could you tell people how they can find your work or where they can see it in social media? Apart from Mint Press News, you can find me on social media. I've been ragging on Twitter for ages, but that's where I'm most active. You can find me at Alan R. McLeod. Alan with one L and M-A-C-L-E-O-D is how you spell McLeod. So at Alan R. McLeod on Twitter, Alan.R.McLeod on Instagram as well. Well worth following the pithy, that's with a T-H for the FCC, daily commentary you have on propaganda, headlines, framing. You give people a mini critical media literacy and news literacy lesson every day in your social media accounts. So I urge people to check those out if you get an opportunity. Alan, you were just spelling out problems of censorship by proxy before the break. And what we're seeing here. It's a big tech operation mockingbird on steroids, really. It goes well beyond assets and influencing, and it's literally people in revolving doors going back and forth. Just to shift gears, similar issue. You wrote a whole piece last year on the use of the video game industry as propaganda, and you specifically honed in on Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. Here's another area where people don't think about infotainment the entertainment, so-called entertainment industry, as a mass psyop for propaganda of empire. Infotainment, a lot of the time, it's more pernicious in terms of propaganda because people don't have their guards up when they're playing video games, as opposed to if they're listening to a politician or if they're watching the news. The video game industry is absolutely gigantic. So a company or a game like Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 can amass more than a billion dollars in revenue within 10 days of it coming out. And not only that, but uh, they are pitched towards mostly younger people, a lot of children, 
and that these people will play this game for weeks, months on end. So this is a real goldmine in terms of uh, actually reaching people and changing their opinions, especially young people who are often the most uh, influenceable. What I found when I was looking at Call of Duty probably won't surprise too many people, the big picture anyway, uh, who have ever played this game. But Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, which only came out a couple of months ago, really turned up the propaganda to 11. It's a first-person military shooter video game, but it has themes written into it, narrative themes written into it. It's this very long-running series which has taken the world by storm, and you usually play as either a British or an American soldier, and their missions very closely mirror things that happened in real life. So, for instance, the first mission of Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, which, as I said, came out in uh, the winter of 2022, you basically have to recreate the assassination of Iranian general and statesman Qasem Soleimani, but you have to do it for points. You're supposed to kill this guy. It's not considered a war crime. It's, in fact, the whole point of the mission. And when I started digging into the documents that have been released under the Freedom of Information Act, thanks to great uh, reporters, journalists, and academics like Tom Secker and Tricia Jenkins, I found that uh, the Call of Duty franchise is intimately interwoven with the US national security state. When you look at the franchise, we see that there are documents from the military bringing the heads of Activision Blizzard, the company that makes Call of Duty, bringing them to the Air Force Base headquarters in Florida and talking about how this is a really great opportunity to get our messages out there. And in fact, they, in their own words, said that they were doing this to, quote, showcase, unquote, their hardware and make the entertainment industry, and I quote, more credible advocates, unquote, for the U.S. war machine. When you actually look at Call of Duty, it's incredible the amount of people who work on it and the senior directors of Activision Blizzard, again, the company that produces Call of Duty, and their ties to the U.S. national security state. So, for example, one great example of this is Francis Townsend, who was the company's senior counsel and until September its chief compliance officer and executive vice president. Prior to joining Activism Blizzard, she worked her way up the rungs of the U.S. national security state. She was the head of intelligence for the Coast Guard. She was counterterrorism deputy for Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. And in 2004, President Bush appointed her to his intelligence advisory board. She was the person who, perhaps more than anybody else, popularized the term enhanced interrogation techniques, the euphemism for torture. She defended the use of torture constantly and helped ramp it up at Abu Ghraib. In fact, the head of Abu Ghraib said that when she visited him, she put him under extreme pressure to ramp up the torture at that particular facility. It was also widely reported that President Trump approached her for the role of director of the FBI. It's not clear whether she turned that down or whether it fell through. But instead of becoming the director of the FBI, she became like one of the most important people in this entertainment company instead, which is an absolutely crazy career shift. If you look at it just on paper, you'd be scratching your head. But when you start realizing that the entertainment industry and the military and the government are actually very closely intertwined, it becomes much more obvious. If she's a propagandist in the government, she can be a propagandist outside the government as well.
This is something that you refer to as the military entertainment complex. That's right. And she is a key member of it. And it's not just her. I mean, we're ragging on her, but I mean, we could have a look at, for instance, Brian Bulatau, who is Activision Blizzard's chief administration officer. He was a former army captain and a consultant for McKinsey and Company. And then until 2018, he was the chief operating officer of the CIA, which means he was third in command of that entire agency. And when CIA Director Mike Pompeo moved to the State Department, Bulatau went with him and was appointed Undersecretary of State for Management. And immediately following his role in that, so he went from CIA to the State Department, he got dropped in as Activision Blizzard's Chief Administrative Officer, even though he has absolutely zero history working within entertainment or video games. And so this really underscores the point that nowadays there's a kind of pay-to-play thing going on. If you become a big enough company in entertainment or media, the government is going to put a lot of pressure on you to start accepting all of their mandarins into senior positions so they can actually control the creative decor, uh, direction of these companies. And if not, you start getting a lot of heat coming in from you uh, talk about breaking you up or regulating you, scare you off. And then ultimately, most of these companies have uh, laid down and accepted that this is going on because they want the profits to keep on rolling. But ultimately, the people who really uh, are hurt by this are the general public who are now being propagandized 24-7, not only in the news, but in the entertainment industry as well. Yeah. And as you said, especially young people who probably don't even realize this is going on. That's exactly right. And you referenced Tom Secker's excellent documentary, Theaters of War, how the Pentagon and the CIA took Hollywood in one of the pieces that you write about. If you haven't seen that film, I highly recommend you seeing it to see how long this has been going on. This predates the CIA, U.S. government involvement in Hollywood entertainment. That's been going on, going all the way back with the FBI to the 20s. Alan, is there anything else you want to say about Secker's documentary? You feature it in your piece. And again, it's it's one of the best, most recent examples of analysis, theaters of war, of just, just how significant a two-way street that, that revolving door is in what you call the military entertainment complex. Yeah, I think Secker's work is really extraordinary. I'm amazed he's not far, far more well-known. He should be a star among journalism. But of course, the stuff he's talking about is too important to be shared, unfortunately. I believe the CIA actually calls him a vexatious requester in terms of how many times he just sends off freedom of information requests to that and other organizations. It's like how the FBI, I believe, referred to the great independent journalist Jason Leopold as a FOIA terrorist. Yeah, I mean, I know that Secker has been so busy that he, Trisha Jenkins and his colleagues have found that the US military has actually since records that he's got has been involved in the production of over 800 movies and more than 1100 TV shows. And it's not just the movies that are about the military like Battleship or Pearl Harbor or things like that. But it's also very, very placid, insipid stuff, very sort of infotainment stuff like The Price is Right, The Ellen DeGeneres Show. You'd be like scratching your head to think the military are really involved in that. Yes, they are. And the quid pro quo for that is that if you get help from the military, if you get tens of millions of dollars of equipment to use in your film, you have to sign over the entire script to them. Every I is changed. Every T is changed. You know, the dotted that and crossed. That's the price you pay for dancing with the devil. The CIA has an entertainment liaison office that's actually has a public website that lists 
films they've consulted on and sort of a bucket list of movies they'd love to see made, i.e. movies they'd love to have a hand in framing the narrative around. And we know that that goes back, whether it's Zero Dark Thirty and some of these other films, they've long had hand in it. But this isn't a conspiracy theory, is what I'm getting at. These are actual things that are happening. These are things that journalists and, and folks interested in freedom of information are writing about, reporting about. You, Alan McLeod, happen to be one of them. We, believe it or not, have to take another break. But we're going to come back and finish our last 15-minute segment with journalist Alan McLeod from Mint Press News. So please stay with us because there's more to come. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today on the program, we've been speaking with journalist Alan McLeod. He is senior staff writer and podcast producer at the independent alternative media outlet Mint Press News. You can learn more at mintpressnews.com. He has a PhD in sociology and journalism. His two books are Bad News from Venezuela, 20 Years of Fake News and Misreporting, and Propaganda in the Information Age, Still Manufacturing Consent. Alan McLeod has also written a host of academic and popular articles on the subjects of media bias, propaganda, and fake news. Alan McLeod, we were just talking about the military entertainment complex. You can read these articles at mintpressnews.com. I want to segue out of this segment and into the issues of censorship that you've been experiencing at Mint Press, particularly around Israel-Palestine. But before we do that, I want to give you an opportunity to kind of wrap up this huge topic. We could have just talked about military entertainment complex for the whole hour. But I'd like for you to talk a little bit more about this because there's anti-Venezuela or pro-regime change stuff going on in these video games about Venezuela, anti-Russian propaganda in the Call of Duty Modern Warfare game. Again, these are far more than just innocuous games. These are ways to program people to accept certain narratives. I think the way you describe it there, the ways to program people to accept different narratives is absolutely perfect. This kind of soft propaganda goes far further than a lot of the hard stuff because people don't realize it and also because it is so prevalent in our society that people are playing these games day after day, week after week, month after month, all the time. And certain things just get baked into you as a kid that uh, you don't even realize that you're drinking from the trash can of ideology, you know? I can't tell you how many tens of thousands of Arab people I have killed in gory, super realistic detail on these games and thought nothing of it. But if that was the opposite way around and you were being suggested that you were a North Korean soldier and you were dropping nukes on the United States, people would see that as terrible. People would be up in arms about it. And, you know, maybe they should be up in arms. But the fact that this isn't happening the other way is really remarkable. And as you alluded to, a lot of these Call of Duty games have unbelievable segments of ideology in them. So, for instance, in Call of Duty Black Ops, the 2010 game, players play as an American commando. 
and their mission is to murder Cuban leader Fidel Castro. And if they actually shoot them in the head, they're rewarded with this gory slow motion scene, and they're given a bronze death to dictators trophy. Likewise, the entire synopsis of Call of Duty Ghosts, another hugely popular game, is set in Venezuela, where players must play as American soldiers who are fighting against General Almagro, who is clearly supposed to be Hugo Chavez. And again, the mission is to shoot and kill Almagro from close range. That's the zenith of the uh, the entire game. And so ultimately, we've got this unbelievable sense of, of violence and of uh, this kind of pro-US imperialist propaganda being injected straight into our veins day after day. And this doesn't happen all the time when you look at other countries. If you look at, say, Japanese gaming, it's mostly about cute Pokemon or something or driving cars. It's a very different feeling to the sort of output that American companies are pumping out all of the time. And I think it really says something about the addiction to war that we have in the West and how fundamentally unwell our societies are. Indeed, Alan McLeod. And, you know, another subject that certainly Minar Adlai and you all at Mint Press cover is the Israeli occupation of Palestine. And you have apparently attracted some attention from uh, the Mossad, I believe. And you wrote about a possible Israeli spy who actually infiltrated Mint Press News. I guess anybody talking about censorship online and, you know, I'm being repressed, etc., Really, if you're not looking at what's happening to Palestinians, you're not really getting the full picture because they are perhaps the most censored people online. The Israeli government works very closely with uh, organizations like Facebook. In fact, there are senior Israeli government officials on the board of Facebook and other companies who put pressure on them to silence Palestinian dissidents. I suppose if you're going to be critiquing Israel, you're going to draw its ire. What you're referring to there happened before my time. Mint Press management essentially believed that a former employee of theirs called Catherine Paris Shaktam might have actually been an Israeli spy who infiltrated them. So for years, Paris Shaktam presented herself as a very devout Muslim, a Shia Muslim. She wrote about the dangers and the foreign policy of the United States, and Saudi Arabia and Israel and how they were up to no good in the region. And slowly she kind of parlayed that into a job in Iranian media. But yet, about a year ago now, she really caused waves all over the Middle East when she wrote an article in an Israeli publication, The Times of Israel, detailing how basically her mission was to walk right into the belly of the beast. And by that she meant going to Tehran and meeting people like Ayatollah Khomeini and the current president of Iran, Ibrahim uh, Raisi. And, you know, it wasn't really clear. She didn't specifically say she was doing this as a spy, but she came out, somebody who presented as a Muslim suddenly revealed that she was in fact Jewish all along and she was a Zionist and she was a big supporter of Israel. So the inference was that she was a spy. And certainly the Iranian government took it as that. It was very embarrassing for them because she was actually writing for Ayatollah Khomeini's own website at this point. And she claims that she met with Khomeini's staff and that they suggested she write a biography of him. So she really got to the center of it. What she was actually doing there, I don't know. She might well have had just a, a pure change of heart and she's wildly gone from one position to another. That does happen sometimes, but there is also the long history of Israeli agents trying to infiltrate Arab spaces and get information on them. 
the world of espionage is not all James Bond and you know targeted assassinations. Much of it is really about gathering information so you can be more informed about what the other side is doing. And that seems like that is a quite likely thing that's happened here. And it's really caused a lot of consternation within MinPress that they were duped into hiring this. Well, they, they didn't hire her, but she was a regular contributor to MinPress. And it certainly made people start to be a bit more aware that this could be happening, not only within the political realm, but also in the media realms. Well, Alan McLeod, let's keep on Palestine here for the remaining few moments we have left, because you also also have commented on the issue last year where Mint Press Editor-in-Chief Minar Adley was booked to host and moderate an event discussing anti-boycott, divestment and sanctions or BDS laws in the United States and how Palestinians are under increasing pressure to silence themselves, when Minar herself was ironically removed from the panel at the behest of somebody behind this conference. The real irony of it is that she was cancelled at the behest of two white Jewish Americans, I believe. So a Palestinian woman was thrown off this panel to talk about BDS and uh, the pressure that Palestinians are under. And this really happened because of one person in particular, Mr. Stanley Heller, who contacted the organization that was putting on this event and really put a lot of pressure on uh, the people involved to try and pull out or the organization itself to cancel it. Um, The organizers themselves went to their trusted advisors, some Israeli people, some uh, Palestinian people, and asked what they should do. And as I understand, they basically all said, this is complete nonsense. You should just keep Minar on the panel, she knows what she's talking about, she's the real deal, etc. But that didn't work with one journalist called Peter Beinart, who is very well known in the United States. He writes in a lot of very important publications. I'm sure he's been featured in places like the New York Times and the Washington Post before. He's the editor at large of Jewish Current. But I think Beinart was really spooked by what Heller told him and said that, listen, it's either me or her. I'm not going to put you in this position, but you have to choose. And then ultimately, the organizers, having sold all these tickets with this big name, Peter Beinar on it, felt like they were painted into a corner. They had to choose between two different types of cowardice, and they chose this one, whereby they just said, actually, you, you've been disinvited, even though, you know, it's on the eve of the entire panel show. Yeah, they took her off. And this is something that Palestinians really have to deal with quite a lot. They get a lot of flack from the Israeli government or the pro-Israel crowd in the United States. We see a lot of movies being cancelled. In academia, we see a lot of professors losing their tenure or being denied tenure because of what they said over the Israel-Palestine conflict. Usually the things that they say tend to be very mainstream if you take a world look. But because the United States is kind of way off at one end of the spectrum, something that would actually be considered kind of a moderate position in Europe or Africa or Latin America suddenly becomes unsayable and grounds for you to be suspended or kicked out of the university when it comes to the United States. Heller's allegations to Beinart was that Mintpress is anti-Semitic, it's pro-Putin and Assad, and you write, the evidence was a Mintpress Wikipedia page, which is totally ludicrous given how many people can edit Wikipedia. And we at Project Censored have written over and over for years about the military industrial complex and CIA, FBI, New York Police Department, any number of government agencies editing Wikipedia entries. And so the idea that that's somehow proof is ludicrous on the face of it. But we go back to the tired trope, though, Alan McLeod. Being accused of being anti-Semitic is no small thing in places like the United States, and Menard's no stranger to those accusations. 
as untrue as they may be. But this is, again, pretty serious issue where, yet again, an expert Palestinian journalist voice was removed from a conversation where they should be the central voices. I think if you're going to talk about justice in Palestine, you really have to be ready for those sorts of smears to come at you. Likewise, if you're a journalist that critiques the Western government and the United States' foreign policy abroad, you better be ready to be called, you know, a pro-Assad or pro-Putin or pro-Saddam or pro-Gaddafi, or, you know, it goes back to the 1980s that you're a red or whatever it is. This is a constant technique of discipline whereby if you become slightly too critical of your own side, you're suddenly immediately assumed and also accused of being a lover of dictators around the world or various horrible ideologies, whatever they are. This, of course, is not the case with Moon Press, and we can go into this and see how ridiculous this Wikipedia page is. It's being edited by this extremely controversial Wikipedian called Philip Cross, who many, many journalists believe is kind of a cutout for intelligence services. I'm not really on board with that analysis, but it is remarkable the sorts of uh, propaganda that Cross puts out constantly on Wikipedia. And although we like to think of Wikipedia as this like democratic space that anyone can edit, in reality, it's actually extremely hierarchical to the point where it's only really professional Wikipedians who spend their whole lives editing articles that can actually challenge anything. Because if you're just some Joe Schmo and turns up and says, this is all wrong, the person can outrank you and just delete you from the platform. And so ultimately, this is how a lot of alternative media outlets who challenge the status quo, whether it's economically or politically or what have you, get disciplined and then get smeared and propagandized as lovers of dictators or radical or conspiracy theorists. There's so many words that you could use to uh, demote or defame these outlets. And frankly, it works because Wikipedia is a very powerful tool and it's something that everybody uses constantly, really. Alan McLeod, I am very, very grateful that you were able to spend the hour with us today and also grateful for the important work that you do at mintpressnews.com. You are a senior staff writer and podcast producer there. Folks can find you online and social media as well. Alan McLeod, one more time, where can people follow your work? You can find me on Twitter at Alan R. McLeod. That's A-L-A-N-R-M-A-C-L-E-O-D or on Instagram, alan.r.mcleod. And again, Alan McLeod, we thank you so much for joining us and just wanted to also remind listeners that last year we talked with Alan on the program about one of his very important investigative pieces that ended up as story number seven in the latest Project Censored book, Concerns for Journalistic Independence, as the Gates Foundation gives $319 million to news outlets. So we've been following Alan McLeod's work here for some time. We hope you do, too. Alan McLeod, thanks so much for joining us on the Project Censored show today. Thank you. Well, that does it for another episode of the Project Censored show today. I'm Mickey Huff, executive director and founding co-host of the program with Dr. Peter Phillips, our former director. Eleanor Goldfield is our current co-host and an associate producer. Anthony Fest is our senior producer and the man behind the curtain. The Project Censored show airs on some 50 stations around the U.S. and is available as a podcast streaming online. Thanks to you, the listeners, for tuning in. We're grateful you spent some time with us for today's program. We'll see you next time. Red, 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 blast the system. We want to get it, get it, get it.